hear what the Spirit is saying to the church from the book of John, chapter 5, verse 1 through 15. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his holy word. Let's pray. Almighty God, we ask that you would open our uh, ears, our eyes, and our heart to see and understand your word in order that we might feast upon the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in His name. Amen. Many Christians speak of being healed supernaturally by God, but in the vast majority of these healings, it's kind of impossible uh, to be verified as whether they are supernatural. In other words, we don't often have things like broken legs that are healed instantly or limbs growing back uh, instantaneously. Uh, I believe that God is the principal cause of every healing. He gave us bodies that, it, that yearn to be healed. Uh, we get an infection and God has designed us such that we have white blood cells that attack the infection. Uh, we get minor cuts and God has given our blood the... Um, He's designed it to clot. Our bones break and then they will grow back together of their own. We need to set them in, uh, in the, uh, the right way, but they, they grow back 
Uh, there are many other miracles that take place naturally within the human body. Also, God has given us the sciences uh, so that we have learned a great deal about uh, how to treat all sorts of maladies that befall the human body. Uh, William Marquay is studying pharmacy uh, that um, can help uh, us in our bodies to, to, uh, to grow uh, in our health. The sciences, far from being antithetical to God, when properly conceived, are very much in line with a Christian worldview. Indeed, discoveries in science are glorifying to God as we learn to think God's thoughts after Him. Now, in saying this, I'm not saying that uh, truly miraculous healings don't take place. Surely they do. Uh, God can do whatever He wants to do. He can choose to heal miraculously. Set aside the laws of, 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 of uh, physics in order to heal a person. Or he can choose to heal naturally, which he does in the overwhelming um, uh, majority of cases. He can also choose to allow sickness and not bring any healing at all. God is the Lord. God boldly told Moses, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? The Lord is the Lord. He's the Lord over our bodies. He's the Lord over our health. I've only witnessed uh, one healing that I cannot explain any other way than miraculous. A man that I had led to Christ came up with a tumor in his mouth. He had been a smoker since his uh, teens, and he was, I think, in his mid-40s at the time. The doctor was certain that it was cancerous. And so I took him to the surgery that morning. And when I offered to pray for him, he told me, don't pray for my healing, but rather pray that I would be content when the God tell when the doctor tells me that it is cancer. Um, he he had a, uh, a a depressing mood about him. Everywhere he went, there was a cloud over his life. I'd given him a copy of Jeremiah Burroughs' book, uh, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And uh, because he struggled with contentment. He wasn't uh, happy unless he was unhappy. And so I told him that I, of course, would pray for his contentment, but I also told him that because Jesus says that uh, we can ask whatever we wish, that it was my sincere, uh, it was my sincere desire that he, would be, uh, that he would not have cancer, that he would be healed, that uh, I would pray for his healing. And so he consented to let me do that. Um, when I picked him up after surgery, he had this bewildered look on his face. Because during the surgery, the doctor's looking at the x-ray that they had taken uh, in the prior weeks of this uh, tumor that was in his mouth. The doctor was cutting, uh, cut his mouth wide open looking for the tumor, couldn't find it, continued to cut in different places in his mouth thinking, well, it's here on the picture, it's got to be here somewhere. 
and uh, there was no tumor. That's been 17 years. He still had no tumor in his mouth. And he's grown just a wee bit in his contentment. Uh, I could tell you about one of my classmates uh, who got hit in the head with a golf ball up at Covenant College and how a blood clot that uh, he had in his head or brain or wherever it was, that it disappeared after the elders from Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church came to the hospital room and, and prayed for him. Uh, the hospital staff, um, we were told, was were truly stunned uh, by that development. And so they released him from the hospital. He wasn't a Christian at the time. He played on the soccer team, which at that time at Covenant College was uh, tantamount to saying he wasn't a Christian. <laughs> uh, but but uh, many have, there was a revival on the, the soccer team. Um, and uh, it, it, it was a stunning thing to see. But he became a believer and then got up and gave his testimony in chapel. So it was, uh, so those would be the things that I could point to, but really the one with my friend that, you know, well, maybe there was some kind of shadow on this x-ray that uh, would not be there otherwise, you know, or who knows. But uh, I believe that God... Uh, in His sovereign providence, because He is the Lord over our health, decided to take away that that tumor. I give these thoughts about healing because we have in our text, first of all, a superstitious view of healing, then we have a real healing, and then we have an unbelieving response uh, to the healing. In fact, next week we'll see a whole lot of unbelieving responses to the healing. But uh, this week we'll only look at, uh, at one unbelieving response to the healing. This passage will challenge the way we might think about who God chooses to heal and how He distributes His blessings. Jesus, you will remember, had been in the region of Galilee and he traveled south from Galilee uh, back to Jerusalem. I'd like to think that he took the dry, uh, arduous route back, the route through Samaria, in order to meet his new friends, these friends that we, we've been um, talking about the last few weeks where Jesus was at the well and met the Samaritan woman and how she came to faith and then uh, she brought the whole town out to meet Jesus because he had, in her words, told her everything that she had done in, in her life and that he was the Messiah. And uh, we get the sense from, from uh, John chapter 4 that most of the town had become Christians. So I'd like to think, well, as he came back from Galilee, he probably went through that town and encouraged them. But the scriptures are silent. Uh, on that point. Anyway, he came back to Jerusalem for the religious feast. Uh, while he was there, he went into an area where there was a pool. Uh, and this pool, it was believed that an angel would come down and stir the water uh, every so often and that the first person in the pool would receive healing. So consequently, 
there were multitudes of, of uh, individuals that had that were invalid. There were the blind, there were the lame, the par- and, and many paralyzed people that were all around this pool uh, hoping to be the first one to get in when the water was stirred. And by the way, this pool is still there. Uh, it's known as the as St. Anne's Pool, and apparently there's a little um, stream that, that bubbles up every so often that feeds this pool. Uh, they've built things over it, um, but it is still there, and the scholarly uh, community, the archaeologists and whatnot, believe that that St. Anne's Pool is the pool that is being referred to here in our passage. Uh, Anyway, this idea that the water being stirred by an angel and the first one in would receive the healing properties from the water, this is pure pure superstition. Uh, It is uh, right on the same plane as astrology and palm readers and stuff like that, just purely superstitious. God has never, nor will He ever, distribute His blessings on the basis of whoever can selfishly jump into a pool of water faster than another person. It's remarkable what people will believe when they are desperate enough. It is sobering to realize how profoundly uh, desperation can affect our judgment. And if things are bad enough, we take our reason, set it over to the side, and are almost willing to believe anything. Desperation, when it grips a person's life, can overcome easily all rationality. People make the mistake of turning God into a last resort when nothing else will work. By the time that uh, even when we turn to God, or by that time even when we turn to God, it is not in faith and trust that we turn to God, but it's in frantic desperation. As we saw last week with the royal official's son, uh, God wants us to trust Him first. He doesn't want us to treat Him as a last resort. He wants us to place our trust in Him from the beginning when we have a struggle or, or, or when we have some challenging uh, set of circumstances in our life. Because see, when we trust Him first, then our perspective is rooted in Him. And when our perspective is rooted in our almighty and glorious God, then our problems shrink in comparison When we have a big God, we realize that all of our problems, all of our hardships, all of our pains, all of our struggles fit very easily into the palm of His hand. And He loves us and has promised to take care of us. You see how having a a perspective that is rooted in God will be a preventative for desperation. Beside this pool was a man who had been invalid for 38 years. Uh, I imagine his desperation had long since passed and turned into despair and hopelessness. 
I don't know how many of those 38 years he had spent by the pool. But verse 6 says, Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time. The man must have been a pitiful sight. Dressed in rags, unshaven, unkept, and very unclean. Even if he could not make it into the pool, he could beg. And that was probably his entire existence. Sitting here beside this pool, begging, and uh, people bringing him morsels of food and water and whatnot. What an existence. I think it's very instructive to examine Jesus' actions in this passage. Verse 3 says that there were a multitude of invalids there. Blind people, lame, the paralyzed. And yet Jesus walks by everyone and the Scripture says, as far as we know, only up to this one individual. Why would you bypass so many people and approach one man? And he asked the man, do you want to be healed? Again, our God is sovereign. I don't know why God chose him and not the others. I don't know why Jesus didn't just wave his hands and, and, and say to all of them, take up your mats and walk. Receive your sight and go your way. But in His sovereignty, because He is the Lord of life, because He is the Lord of our health, He approached this one man. And this man had no idea who Jesus was. It wasn't this man's faith that drew him to Jesus. He certainly did not have faith. He was in the the middle of a 38-year-long pity party. And Jesus said, Do you want to be healed? And he never said yes. If you look at his response, the man just starts complaining. He never told Jesus he wanted to be healed because he was too busy uh, uh, complaining about his, his awful circumstances. But in spite of the man, in spite of the man's uh, despair, what did Jesus do? He healed him. Look at verses 8 and 9. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed. And he took up his bed and walked. Last week we saw that Jesus was pretty rough on that royal official. You remember the royal official? Uh, he had a son that was about 20-25 miles away and his son was dying. And he came up, the royal official came up to Jesus, come and heal my son. And Jesus rebuked him. Jesus waited for the royal, he, he waited to heal the royal official's son until the man had embraced Jesus Christ in, uh, in faith. But now Jesus just, just healed this lame man in spite of this man's lack of faith. You know, these faith healers that have set up a formula to ensure that God heals, uh, they are wickedly twisting Scripture. They set up this formula 
And God has to act according to this formula. And if God doesn't act, it's because you have a lack of faith. Uh, for the faith healers to suggest that if you give them enough money that God will heal you, that is wicked. It's wicked at so many levels. Uh, do you know that they go into third world countries? Because I was in Uganda and I saw it with my own eyes. They go into third world countries and play on the desperation there in those countries. And then they gladly take the meager earnings that these impoverished people have. Put it in their pocket. Come back to America. And, um, and continue trying and unbelievably successfully um, separating people from their money. Hell's mouth is agape, eager to receive those charlatans. Now apparently in verse 9, when the man took up his mat and began to walk, it seems like he must have kept on walking. In verses 10 through 13, we have we find out that he had no idea who Jesus was. He had no idea who had just healed him. So look at verses 10 through 13. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Of course, you can imagine a crowd of lame people. If they had not been lame, they would have overwhelmed Jesus. Um, but instead of healing everyone, he withdraws. And this man who has just been healed doesn't find it really important to know who it is who just healed him of 38 years of being paralyzed and uh, unable to care for himself. Here's the big point so far. I don't want you to miss it. This man who is an invalid had no faith when Jesus healed him and he walked away completely healed and yet it seems to me still had no faith. I think this is confirmed in verse 14 where Jesus then tracks this man down and says to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Jesus did something wonderfully gracious for this man. Out of the multitudes of the blind and the lame and the paralyzed that were gathered around this pool, Jesus chose him to be healed. Jesus singled him out. And yet, this man doesn't know who Jesus is. I find that stunning. Beware of trying to put God in a box. God will do what He decides to do. He doesn't work according to our rationalistic formulas. He doesn't work according to our legalistic ideas. God 
has never given to anyone that uh, we should repay him. He's the sovereign Lord. God will bless non-Christians with with temporal blessings just as he just as quickly as he will bless Christians. He causes the rain to fall on the fields of the just and the unjust, on the fields of Christians and non-Christians. God supplies non-Christians with strong, happy marriages. He supplies them with happy children or healthy children. He even supplies people with a sturdy character who are not Christians. Matthew 5 says that God loves His enemies. So it's not surprising that He will bless them even though they are His enemies. In fact, that's the very context in which we have that verse where Jesus says God causes the rain to fall on the fields of the just and the unjust. Why does He do it? God loves His enemies as well as His children. But every act of kindness on God's part is not an end in itself. God is good to His enemies in order to draw them to Himself. Romans chapter 2, verse 4 says, Do you presume on the riches and of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God loves His enemies so much that He will bless them in so many ways in order that they may see His love, His patience, His kindness and be drawn to Him. Now the opposite side of that coin is if they never come to Him, God's kindness and His patience will be actually a judgment against them on the day of judgment. God is patient, kind, even loving toward His enemies. The problem is, people take God's temporal blessings as an assurance of their salvation. In fact, I bet this is exactly what this lame man man did when Jesus healed him. I bet he said in his heart, God loves me, and He loves me so much that He healed me. Now I better go out and experience all this life that I've missed this past 38 years. And he he quickly put his thoughts of God, of God's love, Not out of his mind, but at the bottom of his priorities. But Jesus would not allow this man to fall into this error. Look again in verse 14. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. People commonly have this thought pattern. God is blessing me, therefore He loves me. So he would never send me to hell. Uh, um, they, may, they mistake God's patience and kindness for His justifying grace. We hear it all the time. God didn't let me die, so He has a plan for me. He's not finished with me yet. Or I have a blessed life, therefore God loves me. And uh, I will go to heaven, even though... I don't know who Jesus is and don't understand anything about the gospel. God's blessed me, so everything's good between me and God is the attitude. And Christians do it too. Um, 
I, I sinned and God didn't destroy me or let me be found out. Maybe He doesn't care about sin as much as the Bible says He, it says, um, he does. Or, or God is doing good things for me so obviously I know I'm saved. Watch out. If you root your assurance of salvation in anything other than the, the shed blood and perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, you are setting yourself up for trouble. Don't simply rely on your experiences for your assurance. Root your salva- the assurance of your salvation in Jesus Christ alone. Your circumstances will change. If you're rooting your your uh, assurance in your circumstances, that's a uh, that's a dangerous place to be. You're setting yourself up for trouble. We think of God's discipline as the motivator for our repentance, but God's kindness, His patience, His long suffering is also designed for our repentance. Truthfully. Everything that God does in our life is designed to draw us near to Him. And so God does something good for us to remind us of His love. Thank you, God. God sends us difficult circumstances to, um, to make us trust in Him more. Thank you, God. God is merciful and patient to us uh, when we sin against Him. And He is merciful and patience, uh, patient to teach us more about His grace. Thank you, God. God sends discipline uh, in order to remind us to repent of our sins. Thank you, God. Such is God's grace that He is always doing what is best for us. Whether it is blessing, whether it is trials, whether it is discipline, He is always doing what is best for us. There's never a moment that He stops loving us with infinite love. There's nothing that He sends into our life that is not for our ultimate good. God's love is infinitely more than we can comprehend. Don't try and figure out His love. Simply receive it. You have a relationship or do you have a relationship with God that brings Him into your every circumstance, into your every blessing, into your every trial, into your every conversation, into every moment, even every thought? Or is God only tangential in your life? Jesus Christ died for sinners. He purchased us for God that we might belong to Him. Trusting. Trusting. Trusting no matter what. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that whether we are in full health or in the weakness of prolonged disease, that You would be our trust and our stay. God, we look to You.
fill us with your faith. Fill us with trust. Fill us with your Holy Spirit that we might keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, in whose name we pray. Amen.